Welcome back to the Resus X podcast. This week, we have Dr. Sarah Krager talking to us about the unstable atrial fibrillation patient. But before we get to the podcast, big news. The Resus X ROSC Return of Spontaneous Circulation Conference is now open for registration. July 11th and 12th, you'll be able to attend this two-day conference with educators like Amamatu, Corey Slovis, Tarlin Hediati, Scott Weingart, and so many other speakers. And if you take care of cardiac arrest patients, this is the conference that you're going to want to attend to learn how to get your patients out of the hospital with the best neurologic outcome. Registration is now open. The link is in the show notes. Go there now, get your tickets. Early bird pricing is not going to last long. So get your tickets now. Now getting back to the podcast, Dr. Sarah Krager gave an amazing talk at Resus X Revolved last year, talking about atrial fibrillation in the unstable patient, all the considerations that you need to make and the things that you need to do for that patient for good outcomes. This is a talk I've actually listened to several times myself, and I know you're going to enjoy it. So let me hand it over to Dr. Sarah Krager. We were all taught by ACLS that if the patient has a low blood pressure and is in the ACIB, we must cardiovert them immediately or else, I don't know, something horrible will happen. They'll code. I don't really know. The thing is that patients in AFib, there's unstable, but then there's unstable. And it's actually not that common. That because of AFib, a patient will be so unstable that if you don't cardiovert them in short order, they're going to code. It happens, but not that often. Because the patients it happens in are usually like the heart failure patients who are extremely fragile. It's much more common that a patient is apotensive and yeah, they're an AFib, but you actually have time. And you may need to spend a little more time thinking about it before going straight to ACLS. Now, when I came out of residency, I feel like my conception of the big questions when treating AFib was this like beta blockers versus calcium channel blockers. And this week, cardiologists like this. And the next week, we like this. And then there was this paper. And for the purposes of unstable AFib, I don't really care because I'm not using either one of these drugs in the unstable patients. But even outside of that, I think that this sort of laser focus on this great beta blocker versus calcium channel blocker thing is kind of problematic because it gets us away from remembering that, in fact, we have this whole toolbox of things that we can and need to do to address AFib. And we should really be thinking much more broadly than just which of these two drugs do I use. We are now going to go through questions number one through seven that helps walk me through broadly thinking about using all the tools I have to control my patients on stable AFib. First and most important question is, primary or secondary? Is the aphid causing my patient to be hemodynamically unstable or is it that my patient is hemodynamically unstable because of something else? Maybe they're septic, maybe they're bleeding to death, maybe they're in cardiogenic shock and the aphid is more like a sinus tachycardia. It's more like the stress response of a sick heart where because of their hemodynamic instability, pushing them over into AFib. And you'll sometimes see this in people who are elderly, people with sick hearts, that rather than going into sinus tachycardia, something will pick them over into AFib. Now, this is important because if you think that your patient is unstable in AFib and you just spend all your energy giving them beta blockers and calcium channel blockers and focusing on getting them out of AFib, 
One, you're often missing the boat as to what's going on and failing them to treat what's actually going on. But two, you're probably doing them harm. Because if you take a patient who's in profound shock from something else, and the AFib is actually a compensatory response, and you start giving them a bunch of beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, you're not helping them. One of the sickest patients I ever had was actually a patient who had a really interesting case of clostridium perfringens with pancreatitis, actually super interesting case. But the presenting symptom, you know what it was? AFib, AFib with RVR. I get called by the hospitalist to the floor. They were like, this patient's an AFib. And they'd been like giving beta blockers and calcium channel blockers and this whole thing. And I come in and I look at the patient and her rate was like 120s. It wasn't that impressive. And I was like, you look like you're in a lot of pain, ma'am. She was like, oh my God, my abdomen's killing me. And I pressed on her belly and I'm like, oh wow, that's not normal. And she ended up having this horrible case of like rapidly progressive necrotic pancreatitis. It was very exciting. But again, her presenting thing was AFib, but it was a secondary AFib. Now, one of the clues was that her heart rate wasn't that high, like 120. And it's not impossible, but it's a lot less likely that the patient is unstable because of AFib if their rate's not that high. If their rate's like in the 180s, I'd buy it. That, okay, yeah, maybe a rate in the 180s, RVR in the 180s, sure, that could be causing their hemodynamic instability. But a rate in the 120s? No, 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 I'm not totally buying that. It's important that you in your head try and get straight what is my primary problem here and what is my secondary problem? That being said about the rate thing, you actually do need to think a little bit more carefully about that. Because it is true that a lot of the time, if a patient is going to be unstable because of their AFib, it's a rate issue, like their rate is just too fast, it's in the 180s. But there's a subset of patients where actually it's a rhythm issue, where that patient just can't tolerate the rhythm of AFib. Why? What patients do that? Those are the patients who need their atrial kick. Often the patients who, for whatever reason, have diastolic dysfunction. You see this a lot in patients' bad hypertension, but thick left ventricle, aortic stenosis. This is classic. Patients with aortic stenosis have these big, thick left ventricles, and they really have high filling pressures. Meaning, if they lose their atrial kick, they can often get really unstable. Sometimes you'll see it in heart failure patients who just have bad heart failure. They also need their atrial kick. And working in the cardiothoracic ICU, initially I was just impressed because I never thought about it. Like I never realized that it really can happen. Somebody can be rate controlled, like rate of 80s, 90s, but in a rhythm of AFib, and they can be really unstable because of that if they have bad enough diastolic dysfunction or heart failure. So if you see a really thick ventricle, on their echo, that's one thing that you could be like, I wonder, I've been treating all this other stuff and they're not getting better. I wonder, they just don't like the rhythm baby. So think about that. Now, if that's the case, now we got to think about how are we going to rhythm control them, not just rate control. Cardioversion. So as I said, when I see a patient who's an AFib with a low blood pressure, I don't immediately go running for the code card and slap pads on them. There's a couple of reasons for that. Well, as I said, you first need to believe that actually the AFib is the primary cause of their instability, because if not, if you think that they're in secondary AFib, like they're in AFib because they're in septic shock, and you start cardioverting them, that's functionally equivalent in some ways to trying to cardiovert sinus tachycardia, and it's not helpful. But the other thing about cardioverting AFib is that 
it often doesn't work. They say it's not that easy to cardiovert. And sometimes I think that if we rush to cardioversion, especially the way we do it sometimes in the ED, we can actually cause some problems. Why? So here's the thing. If you're a patient and a bunch of people all of a sudden get very excited, running through, bringing a code card, start like ripping off your shirt, slapping some pads on you and start shouting about how like, we need to shock them now and shocking you. And then they start talking about how they can't sedate you before they shock you because your blood pressure's too low. That's not a super relaxing experience. It turns out that that can cause patients a little bit of stress. And when patients get stressed, you know what happens? When they get into a little bit of a sympathetic state, their endogenous epidrip starts going crazy. You know what doesn't help AFib? Epinephrine, turns out. Yeah. I've also been impressed by the degree to which just endogenous sympathetic activity can really not help their AFib. And you see this with AFib, you see this with really any type of dysrhythmia. I had this one guy who came in and he was a really interesting patient and he was a relatively young guy. And sometimes you'll actually see it more in younger people just because they have such a robust sympathetic response. And he actually had not AFib, but an arrhythmogenic right ventricle. But it was a similar idea because the reason he'd come in is he'd come into VTAP. And he was tolerating it okay, actually, because he was relatively young. And his blood pressure was a little low, but not awful. But what had happened is his wife had gone into false labor. She was pregnant. She'd gone into false labor and he went into VTAP. And what kept happening is I would get his VTAP under control. Then she would start having Braxton Hicks contractions and he would freak out and go into VTAP. And this happened after this happened four or five times. I was like, okay, everybody. <laughs> and basically sent the wife to OB for a while to let things cool down um, until I was like, or I can just chill him out. And so with him, I ended up doing something I do frequently with AFib, which is a precedent strip. Because their sympathetic state matters. Now, whether that means putting them on a Presidex strip, which I really like doing because it makes you a little bradycardic sometimes, it can actually help you control the AFib. It also just chills them out without depressing their airway reflexes. If I put them on it early in somebody who I think I may need to cardiovert, often by the time I've decided whether or not I need to cardiovert them, they're a little chilled out on the Presidex strip. Sometimes fentanyl is a great sympatholytic. So sometimes if they're freaking out and I think that they need something else, I'll do a little bit of fentanyl or sometimes a combination. But don't forget that your patients have an endogenous epinephrine drug. And if it's going bonkers, it's going to be really hard to control their aphid. So often, that's really important. You got to think about it, pericardioversion. Now, another reason that it might not work to cardiovert them is if you haven't fixed their electrolytes, if their mag is one, you can shock them as many times as you want to. It's not going to work. And so often you need to fix their electrolytes first. And it's hypomag and hypo-K that are going to cause them to have tachydysrhythmias like AFib. Now, I will usually just give them two grams of mag front. I don't check the mag first because what's the worst that could happen? Do I really think that I'm going to give two extra grams of mag and they're going to stop breathing in front of me? Probably not. It takes a lot of mag. We all remember our OB rotations and doing the mag checks, right? Like your mag has to be pretty high. And even if their creatinine's nine, if I give them two grams of mag and their mag level goes up to three, five, I still haven't hurt my patient at all. So I don't check the mag. I just give them two grams of mag right off the bat. If I'm giving them potassium, which they often need, I'll target a potassium for 4.4. I'll target a mag at 2.2. When I'm giving potassium, I'll give it PO because it's just so much faster. Get the liquid PO because the cater, like the like long acting takes too long. Correct potassium and the mag right off the bat because it's going to be really hard to fix the aphid. 
The other thing that it's going to make it really hard to fix the AFib, if you don't fix it, is their fluid status. So if they're hypervolemic, atrial stretch, yeah, the atria don't love it. When the atria get irritated, like when they're stretched, they like to go into AFib. And so sometimes, for example, you'll see this a lot. Somebody who has a history of aortic stenosis, diastolic dysfunction, meaning they have a really steep pressure volume curve in their heart. So like you give them a little bit of volume and it causes a really big increase in pressure that gets then transmitted to the atria, stretches the atria rapidly, those things often go into AFib. But it also turns out if they're hypovolemic, you'll see this with secondary AFib. If they're going into AFib, it's a secondary response to hemorrhagic shock, dehydration, septic shock. Often they won't get better until you give them some fluid. So assessing your patient's fluid status and trying to correct it can be a really important thing. And if you don't do that, and that's a big contributing factor, it often won't matter. Now, finally, drugs. When I'm talking about drugs for AFib, I talk about it really two categories. One, drugs for hypotension. That whole thing about we can't possibly sedate them to cardiovert them because they're hypotensive. That's what phenylephrine's for. Real easy. I think spend a little time with anesthesiologists and you get real comfy with this, like, you break it, you buy it mentality. If I give my patient a drug that makes them hypotensive, I'm allowed to give them another drug that makes them not hypotensive. So phenylephrine. You can do pushes of 100 mics, 150 mics, 200 mics. You can just start a phenylephrine drip. Often, I'll just get one at bedside. So they, I'm like, I may need to cardioavert this person. I'm going to start them on a little Presidex. I make them a little fentanyl, preparing for cardioversion. And I have a little phenylephrine so I can say to the nurse, if they get more hypotensive, don't turn down Presidex, turn up phenylephrine if you need to. So that's as far as it goes for controlling hypotension. Phenylephrine, you can use vasopressin, probably the best things to do. Controlling rate and rhythm. I don't use beta blockers or TSLM channel blockers in a patient who's unstable ethan. Why? Because they're unstable. And I often don't know why. Like, I may think I know that it's a binary AFib and that correcting the AFib will fix the hemodynamic instability. But how sure am I about that? Am I really sure? Because if I'm not, let's say my patient's in septic shock or cardiogenic shock, I give them a beta blocker and now they get really hypotensive. Or I give them a Chelsum channel blocker and it's even worse. Oh, don't worry. Now I'll just give them some norepinephrine. Oh, wait. I just blocked all their beta receptors. So I can get beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. What I like to do is amiodarone. Now, can amiodarone cardiovert them? Absolutely. But if the patient is really that unstable after all of this, you're probably going towards cardioversion anyways. And often amio won't necessarily cardiovert them. It may just rate control them. And in unstable AFib, it may make them a little bit more hypotensive. But the majority of the mechanism isn't directly contradicting what I would try and do with drugs like norepi to support their blood pressure. And so that's why I'll go to amiodarone. I'll go 150 milligram bolus, followed by a drip. I'll repeat another 150 milligram bolus. But again, not as the only thing I'm doing as part of a bigger strategy. So in sum, my seven questions to unstable AFib are one, primary versus secondary. Two, is it my rate or my rhythm that's the problem? Three, do I really need to shock right now? Or do I need to fix all these other things and then try and shock them if they don't work? Four, let me fix my electrolytes, my K and my MAD. Five, my fluid status, are they hypovolemic, hypervolemic? Do I need to work on that? Six, do they have a significantly overloaded sympathetic state? Is their endogenous epidrip going nuts? And lastly, my drugs to support their blood pressure as well 
as to rate and rhythm control them. My go-to for unstable AFib is generally amiodarone. If I have to use a beta blocker, I'll go with Esmolol, but amiodarone is usually bad. That's it.